Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 1 through 21. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll take some time to begin unpacking it. It says, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against the Pharaoh, against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of its, his streams, that says, my, the, my Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness, and you and all the fish of your streams, and you shall fall on the open field, and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I give you as food. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you with the, with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins shake. Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you, and will cut off from you man and beast, and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, The Nile is mine, and I made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your streams, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation, from Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Cush. No foot of man shall pass through it, and no foot of beast shall pass through it. It shall be uninhabited forty years." And I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated countries, and her cities shall be a desolation forty years among cities that are laid waste. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I will restore the fortunes of Egypt and bring them back to the land of Pathros, the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom, it shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms, and never again exalt itself above, above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity when they turn them to them for aid. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. In the twenty-seventh year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army." I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. On that day I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, as you probably already sensed, there's a lot here in this chapter for us to pull out. Now, what I also want you to understand is, is verses 1 through 16, the prophecy in verses 1 through 16 is actually was given prior to the ones that we studied last week. Remember last week we studied the prophecy of Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel to the city of Tyre. Well, that was in the 11th year. This was prophecy, as you see in verse 1, is in the 10th year. Remember, Ezekiel keeps count of what year it is from the date of his deportation when he was taken captive in 597 B.C. over to, to Babylon. 
And so since the prophecy against Tyre happened in his 11th year, and this one happened in the 10th year, this is the year 587 B.C. And actually, even though in our Bible chronologically it's written after the prophecy about Tyre, God gave Ezekiel this prophecy prior to the one about Tyre. All right? Now, at the same time, Ezekiel is told to prophesy against the king of Egypt and all of Egypt. Now, the king of Egypt at this time that he's given this prophecy is Pharaoh Hophra, H-O-P-H-R-A, Pharaoh Hophra. He's the one whom God is speaking to in this prophecy. Now, this prophecy is referring to the defeat of Egypt, which is actually going to begin in 570 B.C. This prophecy is again in 587. Remember, as they get closer to the time of Christ, the years count down. So 17 years later, this, the, the Greeks of Cyrene are going to come and begin the attack of Egypt. But in 568 to 567, about 20 years after this prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come from Babylon, and he's going to absolutely wipe out Egypt and conquer Egypt. And as you see, they're going to be laid waste. He actually will have defeated them, and they will lay waste for, well, how many years does this prophecy say? 40. And actually, if you know the history, Nebuchadnezzar's time and Babylon's time as the world power came to an end around 525 B.C., when the Persians became in power. And if you remember, once Cyrus and the Persians came into power in Babylon, he let the Jews start to go back to their land. Do you remember that in your Bibles and how that happened? Well, the same thing as we see in the prophecy, after the 40 years of their desolation, they're going to be gathered again and brought back into their land, but they won't be a powerful nation like they were anymore on the face of the earth. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want you to notice the time period between 567, which is roughly when Nebuchadnezzar came to have his, begin his attack, and 525 when the Persians took over. It's around 40 years, just as God, God had prophesied through Ezekiel in chapter 29, verses 8 through 15. We're not going to read that again, but we see that's what the prophecy said, and that's what happened. Now, also, we need, I want to take some time tonight to deal with why Egypt was to be judged according to this prophecy. If you remember in our studies, there's usually more than one reason why the nation's to be judged. So one prophet will bring out this aspect of their sin. Another prophet will bring out a different aspect of their sins. But according to God through Ezekiel, if you look at verses 6 and 7, you'll see why Egypt is to be judged by God through Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I'm the Lord, because you have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they grasped you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins to shake. Now, when he uses this picture of a staff of reed, a staff, you know, would be like we would call a walking stick, something you lean on for support. But if it's a staff or a walking stick that's made out of reed, what happens when you lean on it? It breaks. Nothing. And that's the picture he's saying. When Israel leaned on you, you gave in and you hurt them. You weren't the support you were supposed to be. You see, scripturally, Egypt was a, was a help, was a blessing to Israel at one point. Go with me to Genesis chapter 47 and look at verses 1 through 12. And we'll see that at one point, Egypt was a, was a, was a benefit and a help to Israel. As you know, Joseph has gone through all his episodes with his brothers and being sold into slavery and then going into the dungeon and all that. And now he's come into power in Egypt as the second in command. And Joseph in chapter 47 of Genesis, verse 1, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds and all that they possess, 
have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and he went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And then Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So here, when the nation of Israel, small as it was at the time, was looking for a place to live when the famine was so severe that God had already given the insight to uh, Joseph about as he had made the plans to stock up all this stuff because there was going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. When the famine had got so severe, Joseph's family, we know them now as the nation of Israel, they came and Egypt gave them a place to live and let them stay there. They leaned on them and they gave them support. But that quickly changed. Go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, look at verses 8 through 14. It says there, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So now what's Egypt's attitude toward the nation of Israel? Put them into slavery. Again, we see this word picture that God gave in Ezekiel. When they reached out to you with their hand, you ripped their shoulders out of socket. When you leaned on them, you made their loins shake. They leaned on you, and you weren't there for them. Go to 2 Kings chapter 23. We're going to meet a, a, another pharaoh. This is Pharaoh Necho. And it's important that we know a little bit about Pharaoh Necho because we're going to find him later on in the next chapter of Ezekiel. But in 2 Kings chapter 23, look at verses 28-35. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? By the way, before we go any further, you all remember Josiah, right? Was he a good king or a bad king? He was a great king. He was the one that found the book of the law, and he had them all read it, and they, he started getting rid of all the altars and the Baal worship, and he was a great king. Keep that in mind. 
In verse 29, in his days, in Josiah's days, Pharaoh, Necho, the king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land, of, took, of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Now Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, the king of, in place of Josiah his father. And he changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt. Excuse me, and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So here we see that Pharaoh Necho, was he a good guy? Did he treat Israel well? No, when he met Josiah, he killed him as soon as he saw him. And then the people of Israel made one of Josiah's sons king, and Pharaoh Necho came in three months later and says, no, I'm going to pick who your next king is. And he took another son and made him king. But he even changed his name to an Egyptian-type name, and he actually then made them pay heavy taxes to them. The Egyptians, Israel leaned on them, but then Israel turned on them when they did that. Now also, as you probably know from the scriptures, there were times when God said to the people of Israel, I don't want you to lean on Egypt. I want you to lean on me. Because, because of the attitude of the people of Israel was not to the Lord their God, and they didn't trust Him. Many times, whenever trouble would come, they would look to Egypt for help. And a lot of those times, God didn't even want them leaning on Egypt. Go with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 31. Let me show you. Isaiah 31 verse 1 can't be any more clear. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now I want you to keep in mind, we've been talking a lot through our study on how the United States can learn a lot from the Scriptures. Have we been a help to Israel over the years? Have they leaned on us? Yes, they have. And we have been a support to them, but woe to us the moment we turn and stop being that support. Yet at the same time, does God want Israel to rely on the United States? No, he wants them to rely on him. There's this interesting balancing act that we see from the scriptures. Go to Ezekiel chapter 17. Let me remind you of something we studied a while back in our study of Ezekiel. Go to chapter 17 and look at verses uh, 11 through 17. Ezekiel 17, verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Say now to the rebellious house, speaking to Israel, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her kings and her princes, and he brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away. 
that, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he, this is that king, Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. So here God says, look, Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar came, and he appointed Zedekiah as king over Israel. And he made a covenant with him. And if you remember from our study back then, Zedekiah made the covenant. And he even said, thus says the Lord, by the Lord God, I'll keep this covenant. But then Zedekiah broke that covenant and he contacted Egypt and said, come and help me against Babylon. And God says, let me just tell you, Egypt's not going to help you. And because of this, you're going to die in um, Babylon. If you remember, on the way to Babylon, what did God do? Killed all his sons in front of him. Then he poked his eyes out so he couldn't see anything else. And that's the last thing he remembers seeing. And then he takes him to Babylon. We'll go to Jeremiah 37 and see what actually happened. That's what God was prophesying. In Jeremiah 40, 37, verses 1 through 10. It says, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Mahasa, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans, who are fighting against you. And there remained of them only wounded men and every man in his tent. That means people have been wounded and the ones who are too scared to fight. They would rise up and burn this city with fire. What did they do? They learned, turned to Egypt. Egypt actually came out with its army. Babylon heard about it, took off. The Jews were feeling, hey. And God says, hey, you just, Jeremiah, go tell them. Egypt's not going to help. And if you know the story, what did Egypt do? They turned around and went home. And the Babylonians came back in even more force and destroyed Jerusalem and burnt the city. This is why God says in Ezekiel 29, go back to Ezekiel 29, verses 15 and 16. This is why God says in Ezekiel 29, verses 15 and 16, that Egypt shall never again be one on whom Israel relies, and that their weakness as a nation will be a reminder to Israel that they sinned in the past by relying on them. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, and it shall be that the, the, it shall be Egypt shall be the most lowly of the kingdoms and never again exalt itself above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will never again rule over the nations. And it shall never again be the reliance of the house of Israel, recalling their iniquity. When they turn to them for aid, they will know and they'll know that I'm the Lord. In other words, what happened to Egypt was 
when Nebuchadnezzar came in and did what he did and destroyed them, and then the Persians were in control and all for a while, even though the Persians allowed the Egyptians back into their land, Egypt has never again been a world power like it was, even to this day. Egypt is a nation, but it's really not a major player on the world scene. And God said they won't be, mainly because he wants them to be a perpetual reminder to the nation of Israel, we, we relied on them. Why did we rely on them when we could have relied on God? All right. Now, again, please notice that as we've been seeing through all of our study here, that God is dealing with each of these nations mainly because of how they treated Israel. Let me remind you of what God told Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And all those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And all the way through our study, as Ezekiel has not been allowed to speak to the nation of Israel right now while Jerusalem's under siege, and he's been struck mute by God and not able to preach to the Jews, God's been giving him all these prophecies to the Gentile nations, and he's been dealing with each of them according to how they treated Israel. And God keeps track of that. They're the apple of his eye. Now go to verse 17 of chapter 29. You're going to notice here that this prophecy, verses 1 through 16, happened in 587 B.C. But this prophecy in verse 17 doesn't actually happen until 17 years later. In the 27th year, see in the, verse 1, it was the 10th year. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So we see this prophecy about Egypt is 17 years after the prophecy in verses 1 through 16, which means this prophecy that we're about to look at in verses 17 through 21 was given to Ezekiel by God in around 571, 570 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar's army, if you remember from our study last week on Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar's army had besieged Tyre for 13 years, from 585 B.C. until about 573 B.C. All right, remember, what happened in 586? Jerusalem was finally conquered, and it was burned, and they were done. In 585, Nebuchadnezzar and his army moved down, and they started attacking Tyre. And they, they attacked Tyre for 13 years, from 585 to 573. But in 568-67, you remember, that's when they move in to Egypt, as we've been looking at. So 17 years after the first prophecy about Egypt, God has Ezekiel prophesy again. So even though God said to Egypt, this is coming and it's going to happen to you, it hadn't happened for a long time. One thing we've got to keep in mind is God's not in a rush. Whenever we, we, we have a tendency sometimes when we hear a word from the Lord to think it's going to happen right away. Not always. Didn't he say he's coming soon? And what does that word mean? means quickly, when it happens, it will be quick. But it doesn't mean it's going to happen right away as you measure time. And again, God is not in a rush. Why is God not in a rush? I mean, he's given Ezekiel these prophecies about Egypt. Why is God not in a rush? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He gives people a chance to repent. He's merciful in the fact that he's delayed in, in, in his judgment. Tyre is actually, in our, our area today is Lebanon. It's the north, northwest part, northwest of Israel, in that area there. Mm -hmm. But now, Nebuchadnezzar's army, Nebuchadnezzar's army comes in 568, 567 to attack um, Egypt. But, if you remember from our study last week, was Nebuchadnezzar able to fully conquer Tyre? No. Remember, they destroyed the coastal cities? But what did the people of Tyre do? 
they went out to that island fortress and they protected themselves and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't able to do anything to them. And so it wasn't until Alexander the Great came that our prophecy we looked at last week in, the, in Ezekiel about how they're going to take the rubble of the city and throw it into the sea. And as we looked at last week, Alexander the Great took all the rubble and the, the building materials that had been just leveled from the destruction of Tyre and threw it all in the, in the water and they built a causeway out to that island fortress and that's how they conquered them. But because of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't able to fully conquer Tyre, his army didn't get the spoils. And that's how the armies made their money. It wasn't like they all lined up and then Nebuchadnezzar paid everybody their salary. How the fighting men got their money, how they got their payment, was you win the battle. You lose, you don't get paid. But if you win, you get to take the spoils from whatever city or nation you conquer, and they would divide it amongst themselves. If you remember, there was a time when David took his raiding men, and they went to go get their wives back. And some of them were tired. And they said, well, won't we just stay here with some of the stuff? And the rest of them went on and fought. And when they conquered those people that had taken their wives and everything, and they came back, those guys didn't want to share the spoils, remember, with the guys that had stayed behind. But David said, no, 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 we're going to share it equally. And that's a wonderful picture of the fact that some people do do more than others. But God, he loves to share it. But now, so the, their spoil was how they got paid. But they didn't get much spoil from Tyre. They leveled their cities, but all the people kind of fortified themselves and got where they couldn't be gotten out there in, the, in that island. Look what God says. In the 20, verse 17, in the 27th year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Yet neither he nor his army got anything from Tyre to pay for the labor that he had performed against her. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall carry off its wealth. By the way, did Egypt have a lot of wealth? I mean, y'all seen some of the stuff we've seen in museums of all the stuff inlaid with gold and all these things and all the stuff that was stored in some of those uh, pyramids and the burial chambers and all, Egypt had a lot of wealth. God says, I'm going to give it to them. And it just, he'll despoil it and plunder it, and it shall be the wages for his army. Now, don't miss verse 20. Look closely at verse 20. I have given him the land of Egypt as his payment for which he labored, because they worked for me, declares the Lord God. Do you see that? When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar was an instrument of God against Tyre. And he said, I want to make sure they're paid for what they've done. And so because they didn't get paid in conquering Tyre, I'm going to give them all the wealth of Egypt as their payment because they worked for me. Go with me back to Jeremiah 27. And let me remind you of something we looked at a while back, but I want to remind you of it. Jeremiah 27. Verses 4 through 7. God speaking to Jeremiah. He says, give them this charge. Verse 4, Jeremiah 27, verse 4. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the fields to serve, to serve him. 
All the nations shall serve him and his son and grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. God said, I control. I made everything. I control who's in power. I control who the world power is. Do you remember all the visions that he gave to Daniel? The visions that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar about the statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and so on. And it was representative of each of the nations that were going to follow. And how Daniel was given the vision of these beasts, these four beasts. And again, the same thing, the picture of the nations that were to follow. God is the one who determines who's in control and who's in authority over all the nations. But he does it for his purposes. Oh, and by the way, Nebuchadnezzar and his family, I mean, the people of Israel, they're going to become someone else's slave in time too because I determined the seasons. Again, I have no idea how it's all going to play out because the scripture doesn't tell us. But as you've heard me say over and over, I do not see the United States mentioned in the Bible in the very, very last days. I don't know what that means. But if we continue in the same direction we're going as we get further and further away from God, as our states keep approving homosexual marriage and our Supreme Court says it's okay, and as our nation goes further and further away from the God that the Scriptures has revealed and who He really is, and we decide we want to do our own thing, we don't want to be a nation under God anymore, when we continue to go further and further away from God in our actions and our beliefs, and if we turn our back on Israel in the process... As you may have heard me say many a time, there are some Christian denominations that are anti-Israel, pro-Palestine. It's sad to see what's going on in our country. But listen to me. If that continues from what we've seen in Scripture, what will be the result for the nation of the United States, even though we have been a world power, if you will, for many years? No longer. He has every right to do it that way. We are to pray that it doesn't happen. We are to live lives in such a way that we slow the decay around us. But at the same time, folks, we need to be alert to what's going on in the world around us. Go to Daniel chapter 7. As you know, there are many different kingdoms that the scripture says that are going to be over the whole globe. And there's still one more world kingdom coming uh, that's run by man. But go to Daniel chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. After this one last one world kingdom under the Antichrist happens, we see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who's that talking about, of course? It's Jesus. One day, the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The hallelujah, of course, is over there humming it to yourself. You know it really well, don't you? But that's the whole point. I want you to understand that the scripture says one day, when God is done determining who's in charge for his purposes, Nebuchadnezzar worked for the Lord to accomplish his purposes. Oh, they were dealt with because of the things they did as well. But when God is done using nations and world powers to accomplish his purposes on the earth, it will all be handed to Jesus. And I can't wait for that day because he's going to be a good king. Now, before we move on to the next chapter, I want to pull out a couple of things from verse 21. Go back to Ezekiel 29. Look at verse 21. We see those three words again. On that day. 
Remember, these are is a phrase that God uses to describe the very end of time and mainly the millennial kingdom. It says, on that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We've got to deal with this verse because there's some things in here that you might interpret incorrectly because it reads a certain way, but I want to show you it can't mean what you might think it is. So first off, on that day, yes, ma'am, Ezekiel 29, verse 21. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel. And then he tells Ezekiel, I'm going to open your, your lips among them, and then they will know that I'm the Lord. Here's what I want you to hear. This horn, we aren't going to just guess at what this horn is. The scripture tells us, I do not have time tonight. I thought about doing it, but I thought, no, it'll just take us away from the much, much that we've got to cover. If you want to do a fun study, just start cross-referencing the word horn and how it's used. And you're going to see that it refers to power and authority. You remember how the beast had ten horns, and those ten horns represented ten kings and kingdoms, and they had their authority, but they then gave their authority over to the beast, as you know. Go to 1 Samuel. i got to show you just one place. Or sorry, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1. i got to show you one of these places that I could have taken you on this study. Uh, there's a bunch in the book of Psalms. But there's one in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that I think will clarify it for us well enough that one passage will be sufficient. In 2 Samuel, uh, sorry, I was wrong. It was 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As you remember, Hannah has been praying for a son, or praying for a child, and God gives her a son, and she dedicates him to the Lord. But this is Hannah's prayer. And again, as Hannah is praying, you're going to notice that Hannah's not praying. The Spirit of God is prophesying through Hannah. Listen to what she says. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. But those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength, there it is again, to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. So when we see in Ezekiel later on that God is going to raise up a horn in Israel, who's that horn in Israel? It's Jesus, but it's referring to his authority and his power and his strength. But if we remember from the prophecies that God was going to exalt the horn of his anointed, and then later on, God through Ezekiel says, In those days, or on that day, I'm going to raise up a horn in Israel. We know it's Jesus. Is he going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, as the scripture says? And we'll touch on that in just a little bit. But then he goes on and he says, 
when Israel's authority over the nations is restored, that's what it's referring to here. Remember, he's just said that Egypt will no longer be a world power. But there'll be a time on that day when Israel will be over all the nations. He says, then I'm going to open your lips among them and they'll know that I'm the Lord. And a lot of people just assume that's when Ezekiel's going to be no longer mute. But that can't be what this is saying. When was this prophecy, verses 17 through 21, given? I already told you. I'm sorry. There in, it was in the, in the 27th year after his captivity, which is 570 B.C. Remember, Ezekiel was told that he was going to be mute and unable to speak to the Jews for how long? Till the city was destroyed. Very good, Michael. Man, you get bonus points, man. That's awesome. Go to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Look at verses 21 and 22. In the 12th year, Ezekiel 33, 21. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. Remember, he had been told, you're going to be struck mute during the whole time that Jerusalem's under siege. You're not going to be able to speak to the people of Israel. They can beg you all they want to say, what's the word from the Lord? I'm not going to let you able to be able to speak for three years. You can't tell them anything. But the scripture shows us that he was made unmute in the 12th year which is 586 B.C. This prophecy is in 570, 17, 16 years later. And then after he's already been made unmute, he's told, when this happens, then they will know. In other words, remember these prophecies to the Gentile nations? When are they really going to understand them? When will his mouth be opened to the Gentile nations. Anybody have any idea when the Gentile nations are finally going to acknowledge what God said through Ezekiel was true? In the millennial kingdom, in that day, on that day, when Jesus comes back and he judges all the nations and he restores the fortunes of Jerusalem and restores the fortunes of the nation of Israel and they're exalted as above all the other nations and Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem with them as all the prophecies have been saying, in that day, that's when people are going to get what you're saying. The Gentiles are going to get it. That's when your mouth will be open to them. You understand? Folks, I want you to understand that many of us, we, we get this wrong notion that when we share the gospel, people are supposed to get it. We've been told to just plant and to water and leave the increase to the Lord. And many of you have stopped sharing your faith in the good news of what God has done through Jesus because you told somebody and they didn't respond. And then you hear of someone who told somebody and they responded and you just think, well, they're better at it than me and I probably must be no good. Folks, understand, it's God who opens eyes and ears. Our job is just to share it and to live it. Leave the results to him. It's not up to us. That's why I always encourage people to stop trying to pressure someone into, would you like to make a decision right now? Would you like to pray the prayer right now? That's not how the Bible teaches it. It's when God opens their eyes and we're just going to share it. And Ezekiel is told, all this stuff that I'm saying through you to the Gentile nations, they won't understand it until I come back and set up my kingdom. That's when your lips will be open to them. That's when they'll get it. You see it? This is not Ezekiel being unmuted to Israel. This is Ezekiel being unmuted, if you will, to the nations. Chris. Is this when the scales will be removed? Pretty much, yes, sir. 
pretty much. Israel themselves is going to come to a point where they understand the Scriptures. Remember, they've experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel that's left at the end of the tribulation is going to be saved. And they're going to look on Him whom they pierced. They're going to realize that Jesus was the Messiah. But that's not going to happen until down the road. But then when He restores Israel, well, I'll tell you what. Don't just take my word for it. Go with me real quickly to Jeremiah chapter 30. I want you to be reminded again that the Scripture is very clear that Jesus is coming back to this earth and He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem and Israel. Even though they're back in the land, this isn't the prophecies being fulfilled yet. There's a, the prophecies are yet to be fulfilled when Israel become the chief over all the rest of the nations. Jeremiah 30, look at verses 18 through 24. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall rebuilt on its mound, be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst open upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. Oh, in the latter days you will understand this. You see it again? Oh, Israel, you're not even going to understand these prophecies until the end. But Israel, in the latter days, you'll understand this too. Go to Jeremiah 31. Look at verses 1 through 14. At that time, declares the Lord. Does that sound familiar? At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of the, all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Remember, the, during the second half of the tribulation, they're going to run out to the wilderness and be protected by God. When Israel sought for rest, and the Lord appeared to him from far away, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit, for there shall be a day when the watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, and let us go up to, up to Zion to the Lord our God." For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame and the pregnant woman who and she who's in labor together, a great company. They shall return here with weeping. They shall come and with pleas for mercy. I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands far away. Say, He who has scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from his hands too strong, from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Jump down to verse 23. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O inhabitants of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the very soul, their very soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke, and I looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to overthrow, destroy and to bring, bring harm, so I will watch over them and to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. And each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. By the way, that new covenant that he's going to make with them, we've been given it now by God's grace, the Gentiles. He's just given it to us as a gift. That covenant that is still yet to be made with Israel is ours today to make Israel jealous, according to Romans chapter 11. But I'm going to make it with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This is the nation of Israel. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city, Jerusalem, will, shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go farther, straight to the hill Garib, and then shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Folks, this isn't spiritual symbolic words. This is literal prophecy that's going to happen. Now, why do I share this with you? Because we're in the church age and this stuff's going to happen after we've been raptured and we're going to come back with him when he rules and reigns on the earth. But why am I sharing this with you? Why are we studying Ezekiel? Why are we looking at these prophecies to the nations? Because one day they're going to get it. And how are they going to get it unless someone tells them? How are they going to hear it unless it's shared? Folks, just because we may not experience some of the things we're talking about, I believe some of these we will but some we won't, doesn't mean that we aren't to just share with them. Here's what God's word says. Just leave it to that. Are the people for the most part going to say, yeah, I understand about the tribulation and the millennial kingdom and I get all that. No, but the Bible has already told us the Gentile nations won't understand Ezekiel until Jesus comes back and sets up his authority in Israel. And the nation of Israel is not even going to fully understand this until those days. In the latter days, you'll understand this, God said. So where to at least tell them? Yes. Is there any significance, like in verse 31, where he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the northern and the southern kingdom, and then 33 just lumps them all together as the house of Israel? I think, honestly, I love the fact that he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Because there are some Christians that try to just say, well, the church is the new Israel. So wherever it says Israel, it means the church. And you could build that doctrine from places in Romans where God said not all of Abraham are of Israel and so on, but those are of faith. But I love the fact that he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That clarifies he's not talking about spiritual Israel, those who are of faith, but he's talking about the specific people, the Jews. But then when he calls them Israel, once they're lumped together, they're no longer be called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's Israel. Do you understand? They were Israel at first. They became two kingdoms. And I significance as to why in some places it's together. I, I, I don't. This is down, it's not. For me to try to explain the mind of God that way, I'd be stepping into realms I shouldn't. But I love the fact that you can't say this is talking about the church. You know what I'm saying? It's obvious he's not talking about the church. But otherwise, I, I can't tell you. Well, he's bringing the whole house of Israel together. Agreed. And by what she was saying, in some places it says both. In other places it just says Israel. And then in another place it'll say Israel and Judah again. She was just curious as to why. It's kind of like with Jesus saying Simon and then Peter and then Simon. You know, and then, you know what I'm saying? But you're right. He's going to bring them all together, and one day it will no longer be Judah and, and, and Israel. It'll be just Israel. Go quickly. I got going a lot more than I planned, but we got Ezekiel 30 real quick here. I'm not going to read chapter 30, verses 1 through 19 to you. I want you to read them on your own. But I want to point out to you verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I want you to notice how God is not vague in specifying whom he'll use in bringing this judgment on Egypt. It's very clear. I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come and to bring this judgment on Egypt. God's doing this so that people will actually turn to him in faith and trust He's telling them ahead of time what's going to happen. Real quickly, go with me to Isaiah 48. Let me show you a couple of things that God says through Isaiah that will kind of help us understand this. One of the main reasons for prophecy, does anybody know what one of the, 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 probably the biggest reason for prophecy is? I'll say it again. Proof of the power of God and proof that God is, is who He is and that His Word is true. One of the big reasons for prophecy is God will tell us ahead of time what's going to happen, specifically, literally, and then when it happens, specifically and literally, how did he know? Because he's God. That's proof. Go to Isaiah chapter 48. Look at verses 3 through 5. God says, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. You see it? Because I know that you're obstinate and your neck is like iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, or my carved image and my metal image commanded them. Go to Isaiah chapter 45, back a couple of chapters. Chapter 45, verses 20 through 23. God says, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep, them, keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? A righteous God and the Savior, there is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. 
I love those last two verses. Look closely at the, the gospel promise here. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Look at chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Why does God tell him? It's going to be Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that's going to come and do this. Why? Because when it happens, you'll know that God said it and he meant it. Oh, by the way, verses 12 and 13 also are another. Listen to you, to me, you stubborn of heart who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. In each of these places, when he says, uh, I'm telling you ahead of time so that you'll know that I'm God. He gives a little gospel offer, doesn't he? He gives a little offer of salvation and how it's going to be coming by him, through him, in righteousness, through the one he puts in Zion. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 20 through, 20 through 26. Look at Ezekiel 30, verses 20 through 26. It says, in the eleventh year, on the first month of the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So if you remember, this is now not 27 years later. It's back prior. This was given prior to the verses we just saw at the end of chapter 29. In the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and behold, it has not been bound up to heal it by binding it with a bandage so that it may become strong to wield the sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and I will break his arms, both the strong arm and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them through the countries, and I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break the arms of Pharaoh, and he will groan before him like a man mortally wounded. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they'll know that I am the Lord. Again, this prophecy is now 587. It's Jerusalem still under siege. Don't miss this. If this is in 587 and Jerusalem's been under siege from 588 to 586, while Jerusalem is under siege by the Babylonians, God's given a prophecy to Ezekiel in Babylon about a future destruction of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? But many of us would say, what's God doing giving a prophecy to Ezekiel while Jerusalem's under siege? Shouldn't God be over there? <laughs> oh, first off, God can multitask. Don't think that if he's talking to Ezekiel, he isn't paying attention to what's going on in Jerusalem but also don't forget, we're not going to turn there, but if you remember back in Ezekiel chapter 4, when God told Ezekiel to build this little diorama to picture what's going to happen to Israel, and he's to take a brick and to put the city of Jerusalem name on it, and he's going to build the siege walls against it, and then Ezekiel was to lay down on his side and put an iron griddle between him and the city. In other words, when the siege comes, pray all you want. You're not going to get through. And remember, Ezekiel's been struck mute so that he can't even speak to the people from God. So 
Does God know what's going on in Jerusalem? Yeah, but he's doing other stuff now. They had their chance, and he'll come back and give them an opportunity later on. But right now, in the midst of the siege, he's given a prophecy to Ezekiel about what's going to happen to Babylon. Now, what does it mean, though, when he says, I've already broken one arm of Pharaoh, and I've made it so that he can't wield a sword, but I'm going to break both arms. Remember, this prophecy is about Pharaoh Hophra. When he says, I've already broken one arm, he's referring back to Pharaoh Necho. Remember Pharaoh Necho? I told you we'd come back to him later on. Remember Pharaoh Necho was the one who went and killed Josiah and put in charge who he wanted. It wasn't the Babylonians who picked the king. It was Egypt that had picked the king, Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh Necho was the one who determined who the king was. But if you know your history, and I know you love history, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar went down to Egypt and they had a battle with Egypt. Babylon did not totally destroy Egypt, but they crippled them to the point that they could no longer go out and attack anybody anymore. Well, I want you to see it. Go to 2 Kings 24. And I think we're going to finish. You just got to listen a little faster. 2 Kings chapter 24. Remember chapter 23 is where we read about how Necho killed Josiah. In chapter 24, look at verses 1 through 7. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Remember, Jehoiakim has been sending tribute to Egypt. hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. But in Nebuchadnezzar's day, King Babylon came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came up upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin his son reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Nebuchadnezzar actually crippled Egypt. Didn't destroy them or defeat them to the point that they were no longer in their land, but he broke his arm, Nico. He broke his arm so that, what did the prophecy say? So that he couldn't wield a sword anymore. Egypt had been defeated in such a way they couldn't come out to go in battle against anybody anymore. And God says to Ezekiel, I've already broken one of the arms of the king of Egypt. I'm going to break them both now this time. You see it? I've already dealt with Nico. I'm now going to deal with Hophra. Now, I'm going to ask a question as we close. Why would God punish Pharaoh Hophra for past sins of Egypt? And Nico. Hophra was extremely prideful on the, that's the whole crocodile thing. Yes. I'm, you were reading my notes, Sheila. We skipped over it in chapter 29, but I want you to go back and take a look at verse 1 through 3 and verse 8. And the, it says, go to verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and prophesy against him in all Egypt. Speak and thus say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, this is Hophra, great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Look at verse eight. 
because uh, therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I'll bring a sword upon you and will cut off from you men and beasts and oops. Yeah, when man and beast in the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste, then they will know them, the Lord, because you said the Nile is mine and I made it. So was Nico, sorry, Hophra being judged for his own sins or the sins of his nation? Someone said it. Yes. Yes. Sometimes you're going to be caught up in what goes on when God judges a nation You'll be dealt with individually for your sins, but sometimes we get caught up in a judgment on a nation. Did that not happen to Daniel? Did that not happen to Jeremiah? Did that not happen to Isaiah? Did that ha not happen to Ezekiel? Did that not happen to many people who served the Lord? But even when the nation was judged, it affected them as well. That's why Daniel prayed in Daniel 9, I was confessing my sins and the sins of my people, Israel. Folks, when we pray for our country, we should not pray aloof and standing off and saying, oh, God, they're being so bad there. Lord, apart from your grace, I'm just a sinner like everybody else. Thank you for your mercy toward me. Would you give mercy toward our nation? Because they're made up of people just like me. But you've opened my eyes. Would you open their eyes? You've helped me to see this truth. Would you help them to see this truth? And it'll change your prayers instead of you saying, I... I'm glad I'm not like this publican. No, don't pray for the United States like you're better than them. Pray for them, understanding that apart from God's grace, that's where you would be as well. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.